The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Abraham went back to his young men and they got up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham settled in Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Hannah. I love my kids. I love them pretty pretty much more than anything that, that I can imagine. And, and I've been with my kids through some really hard things, some pretty serious troubles and trials and, and some really close calls. Like I've been with them in hospitals. I've been with them through bad burns and through a near drowning. And, and I'm so thankful that in each time we got them back. You know what I mean? I can't imagine what it's like to lose my kid. Uh, although I, I know people that, that have. Uh, I can't imagine losing one of my kids, let alone uh, having to, let alone having to offer them up, let alone having to be the one who actually took their life, let alone having been told to, let alone having been told to by God. Um, and, and yet that's what happens in this morning's story in Genesis 22, right? Like that, that's what happens, isn't it? So... We're in this series called OT Talks. These are old ideas worth spreading. And, and we've been going through the Old Testament and seeing how it only really makes sense for us through the lens of Jesus. And last week, Mike Lewis great, uh, did a great job leading us through the story of Noah. Today, we're dealing with the story of what the Hebrews call the Akedah. It's, the, it's Hebrew for the binding, the binding of Isaac. Um, it would be really hard to overstate the importance of this story for Israel and, and their identity. Uh, like this is where God tells Abraham to offer up Isaac as a burnt sacrifice. The same Isaac who uh, God had promised was the key to God's future, to, to Israel's future. Like through this child, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so you actually need this Isaac. Now, I, I bet this is probably not the first sermon that you've heard about this passage. Uh, it's, it probably won't be the last, but it might, um, it might be troubling. It might be among the more troubling messages. I don't know if this story, when you read it, I don't know if it troubles you. I don't know if it's allowed to trouble you. Is it? When, when you read this story, is it allowed to, to trouble you? Does it make you, when you read this, does it make you worry that God might ask you 
to sacrifice something or someone that you love to God. You know, a recent study that came out, it was published by a group called Power to Change. They, they, uh, it, the study was called Renegotiating Faith, and it explored reasons why almost half of young people leave the Christian faith as they age, as they grow up, and as they leave their parents' home. And um, one of the things that the study said is that young adults, they find non-confrontational reasons to, or ways to exit the church. Uh, even when they reject their parents' faith, they often find ambiguous ways to express their disagreement so that parents can plausibly figure their children still share their beliefs. I find that, I find that fascinating. That's actually really important. Um, as it went on, it said that um, when students leave home in, for work or for school, that turns out to be kind of an opportune time for young people to leave the faith. And, the, and what it said was, like, that's not the point at which they decided to stop being Christians. The study said that they had, they had a growing uneasiness with their church or its Christian teachings and the new activity, whether school or job or sports activity or something like that. It allowed them to distance themselves from church without having to name the theological or moral conflict as the reason. Now, that's super important. Like, don't miss this. The problem with these young people isn't a lack of good Bible teaching. Okay, and that's not the reason they're leaving the faith. The reason they're leaving is that the teaching raised a whole bunch of questions and doubts and objections that it wasn't safe for them to talk about. Think of that. So today, I just want to make it safe to talk about that. Uh, and, and I want to confess, this sermon makes me uncomfortable. Like, it makes me feel a little un- unsafe, if I'm, if I'm totally honest. Because to do justice to this story, I may need to, I may see, say some things that are uncomfortable or upsetting to some of you. And like most pastors, um, I feel loved and I feel uh, safe when my people love me and when my people think I'm doing a good job. I feel like a failure. Or I feel like I'm in danger if my people are upset with me or if they think that I'm a, a heretic or something like that. Um, and, and so it's actually kind of tempting for me to sort of gloss over the problems that I see in this story, but I can't. Because if renegotiating faith is true, if the study is true, then, then the, the stakes in this are just too high. And so today we're asking, what do we do when God seems ungodly. How do we trust him if deep down we fear that he might ask us to, or he might take away something or someone that we love? How do we trust him if we fear that that might happen? I actually think that this story is less about what God wants to take and more about what God wants to provide. And the way that we're going to see that is as we go to the story Look, look at it carefully, and as we ask some questions, acknowledge the problems, and then we get to the good stuff. All right, we're going to ask some questions, we're going to acknowledge the problems, and then we will get to the good stuff. So I want to begin by asking some questions. Ask some questions. Like, if I could take Abraham out for coffee after this story happened, uh, I would love to ask him some questions like, what does God's voice sound like? You know? Or, or when... When God asked you to offer up Isaac, why didn't you object? Like you objected when God asked you, when, when God was talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, you, you objected, you know, why, why didn't you, like, did, did this trouble you, did, did, or did that trouble you more than this story? Like, how, how did that work? 
I'd want to say to Abraham, like, dude, I, I admire your faith. And it's interesting that in verse 5, you told your servants that you and Isaac would be right back. And, uh, and in verse 7, you told Isaac that God himself is going to provide the lamb. Like, I find that, I, I just think that that's amazing. Your faith is so strong. Like, was there never a doubt in your mind that this was going to work out? I'd want to ask Abraham, like I, I read in Hebrews 11, it says that the reason you could handle this test was because you looked forward to the, the resurrection of Isaac. So I'd want to ask Abraham, like when did you think that that was going to happen? When did you think Isaac was going to be raised? Like was it after you slit his throat? Was it going to be after you burned his body? When, what, 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 how would that work? I'd want to ask Abraham, was, who do you think this, was, this test was harder for? Was it harder for you or for Isaac? Because your test was to offer up your son, but his test was to let it happen. I'd also want to ask Abraham, what happened when you realized that this was all a test? Like, did that change your relationship with God on the other side of it? And did it affect your relationship with Isaac? Last question. Did it affect things with Isaac? Because I notice in verse 19 that it's just you, Abraham, and your servants who move on to the next town. Where is Isaac at the end of this story? Why don't we see the two of you together in Scripture again after this story? Or, or maybe that's just, is that a coincidence? So I have some questions for, for Abraham, and, and you're, you might too. Like your questions for Abraham might be different from mine. But just so you know, what we're doing here, talking to the, to the characters, interacting with the, with the figures in the story, that's a very Jewish way to honor God and to honor the story. God actually welcomes that. And, and when we do, we acknowledge the problems uh, in the story. Um, if you're paying attention... Sooner or later, someone will ask, would God ask me to kill somebody that I love? Like, what, it, it, and if he does, what if I say no to that? Like, what if, is God going to test me by asking you to kill me? Like, does that happen? And, and I know that you want to say no to that, right? You, you want to say no. You want to say, of course not. God would never do that. Except the Bible itself is what makes it look like God would. It's like the Bible itself might actually be on their side. And so we have some choices about how we're going to resolve this. Like we have some, some, some possible solutions here. Like one solution is, well, maybe God can do bad things if he wants to. Maybe he can. Now, you would not say it that way, of course, obviously. You wouldn't say that God does bad things, but you might say, and whatever God does is not evil. Like, if God commands it, it can't be evil. And in fact, one famous pastor, if, if I were to name him, you would know who I'm talking about. He says, it is right for God to slaughter any time he pleases. God gives life and he takes life. Everybody who dies, dies because God wills that they die. God is taking life every day. He will take 50,000 lives today. Everything God does is just and right and good. God owes us nothing. He does no wrong to anybody when he takes their life, whether at two weeks or at age 92. God is not beholden to us at all. He doesn't owe us anything. Wow. So that's one way to look at it. Maybe God can do bad things if he wants to. Another solution you might have would be God isn't like that anymore. Like this test was unique. This was a one-time thing. But God doesn't test people anymore. God doesn't do that. 
Um, so that's another solution. Another one, and, and this might be the most popular, it would be ignorance is bliss. You know what I mean? Ignorance is bliss. Maybe because the implications of a story like this are so uncomfortable, we don't want to think about them. We don't want to wrestle with them. And, and, and so here, we might sort of superficially rake the story in order to make some superficial connections or, or moral lessons. Like, for example, one teacher that I came across, uh, she had done a, a sort of a, a brief study of, of Genesis 22, and she told her, her audience, when we lay down what we cherish before God, it enables us to reprioritize. It enables us to reprioritize and give God the place of honor in our lives. Only after realigning our will with his can we receive back what we freely offered him. So her lesson from the story was, after realigning our will with God, can we receive back what we freely offered him? So what do we do with these options? I've I've got some suggestions. I, I hope, first of all, that we would reject the first. I hope that you would reject the first option out of hand. A thing isn't good just because God did it. Sorry. Like, I don't care who who the pastor is, who the teacher is. God actually does owe us something. He owes himself something. God must be God. God must act consistently with how he has revealed himself in Scripture. Isn't that true? Like, the Bible was God's idea. And if things, if words like good and loving and holy, if those words are going to mean something for us, um, or if they're not going to mean anything, if they can mean whatever, you know, we want them to, we actually don't have a Bible. So that's so important. I want to reject that first option out of hand. I think we should reject the second one too, because God doesn't change. In fact, when it comes to trials, I think many of us might be experiencing trials and tests right now. Most of us have experienced trials and tests of, of some kind. You might, and, and, and so you know that we're tested. You know, the language of whether God's doing it or is God allowing it to happen is really actually kind of secondary. But, the, but we should reject the idea that God has changed because we experience trials. And I think that we should reject the third one too. Like I can totally empathize with this third option, but I actually think it's not helpful. It's really not helpful. I, I actually believe that this is one of the most superficially taught stories. Like I think this is one of the most uncritically taught stories in all of scripture. And here's why. Abraham didn't freely offer up Isaac in this story. Not the way that it's written anyway. He was told to, by God, to kill his son and to set him on fire. Because that's what a burnt offering is. That's what a burnt offering is. And so somebody's going to go like, this is a story about reprioritizing. I just want to go like, what are you talking about? Like, have you even read this story? Like, are you paying attention to what it says? Like, if if we're afraid to face these stories and really wrestle with them, do you know what? Like, people can tell that. If if we're afraid to to really uh, let the story say what it does, and and we're just going to sort of superficially deal with it, our kids are listening. They, They can tell that that's what we're doing. Now, I'm not ready to give up on this story. I'm not ready to give up on God as he's revealed himself in this story. In fact, I want to offer us a way forward that isn't actually new. It's very, very ancient. Because I think the problem isn't God and the problem isn't this story. The problem is actually the expectations that we have of a story like this.
you know, in the, in the 4,000 or so years since Abraham lived, this story has been told and retold in songs and plays and poetry. And, uh, and the ancient rabbis would take this story and they would change it and rewrite it. And they would add characters and they would change some of the details. But each time it still told the same truth. It still told the same truth. It was like, it was like their Braveheart. You know the story of Braveheart? It's like, it, it is history, but with, you know, some, a little bit of artistic license. You know what I'm talking about? And, and so, so, so think of it this way. You know, you know the difference between an art gallery and a museum? You know, those are two very different spaces, right? People go to a museum in order to, to study an, an interesting artifact. And people go to an art gallery in order to gaze at, like a, at a masterpiece. And, and so when you're in the, 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 ga- the museum... When you're, sta- when you're in the museum studying uh, an artifact, you nod and you say, wow, that's really interesting. Hmm, hmm. And when you're at the art gallery, you might weep and you have an emotional reaction. You might worship uh, at, the, uh, at the art gallery. And, and one of the reasons why modern readers stumble over a story like this is because we think that one of those is truth and the other one of those is unreliable. And that is wrong. That's wrong. Because history tells the truth and art tells the truth as well. Let me say that again. History tells the truth and art tells the truth too. There's tension and there's mystery and there's a, there's a, a push and a pull and there's pieces sometimes missing of this, in the story. And it doesn't answer all of the questions that we want to ask it. And I know that that is hard for us, for some of us. Maybe temperamentally, we want the story to behave. We want it to be neat and tidy. And it doesn't. And and I want to say that that's okay. I want to suggest that we enter into the story of of the, the, the sacrifice of Isaac, the way we enter into this ancient space that is both museum and art gallery. It's both a museum and it's an art gallery. And that's how they read it. That's how they read this story. That's how they held on to this story. And if we don't, if we don't approach it that way, I think it's going to create all kinds of problems for us that I think it was never meant to solve. But if we have realistic expectations for it, if we have fair expectations for this story, and if we keep reading, we can see that this story actually had a number of goals. It had some goals that, that, that for, for Moses when he wrote it down. For example, it served a religious purpose uh, for, for Israel. Like Abraham in this story becomes the ultimate example of faith. And there's nobody greater than him for the Jews. It's like, hey, Israel, hey, brothers and sisters, we are the family of God. We are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And, and we need to obey God just like he did. That's who we are. So it had a religious purpose and it had a legal purpose. It had a legal purpose because after they leave Egypt, some of the Jews rebel against God. And it's going to be up to Moses. It's going to be Moses' job to actually put some of them to death. Do you know that? Like it's actually his job to execute them. And if not for this story, some of those people might go, what gives you the right, Moses? Like where do you get off doing God's justice uh, for us? But they can't ask that because this story now is a legal precedent because God's prophet 
has to obey God's command, even to kill. And so there's a legal purpose to the story. There's a social purpose to it as well. This, the, the social purpose is kind of like this. Like, um, like when we look at all the cultures around us, when we look at the Mesopotamians and the Babylonians and the Akkadians and all of you guys, you know how we know that our God is better than your God? It's because our God doesn't accept child sacrifice and yours does. So our God is the one true God. He is the best God. And so there's a, there's a social purpose. There's also a national purpose, I think. And it goes like this. It's a, it, like this story, it explains Israel's destiny. You know, it reveals their, their birthright. Because the angel of the Lord himself and the angel of the Lord who is God, he ties this story to Israel's future. The, the angel of the Lord tells them that their offspring is going to possess the city gates of their enemies. Like that sounds pretty great for Israel, right? Um, it tells them, he, he tells them that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed by your offspring, Israel. And, and, and that's pretty good. That's pretty good news to, for Israel. And, and these goals, these purposes are pretty good news for, for Israel. But this is not the whole picture. Because this story is a masterpiece in my view. I, I, think, I really believe this story is a masterpiece, but it isn't finished. Because I don't know if you noticed, but... Um, this was supposed to be the story of this like epic test of how much God is worth to Abraham. Like the question is, how far would you go? At what point would you say no to God? What price would you pay, Abraham? Would you even sacrifice your son Isaac, whom you love? And, and, and the thing is, when it came time to pay the bill, God settles not for Isaac, but for a ram. It wasn't even Abraham's ram. It's like, that's it? Like, that's what God is, is satisfied with? The, the ram is the cost of proving God's worth to Abraham? That's, that's the acceptable cost here? Speaking of the lamb, the interesting thing, I think, is that what's, what, what they found stuck in the bush was a ram, not a lamb. You know, Abraham told Isaac that God himself would provide the lamb, but no lamb died that day. You're like, where's the, where is the lamb in this story? And, and, and there was supposed to be a resurrection. We, we read in Hebrews that Abraham looked forward to the resurrection of Isaac. He believed, okay? He believed. And what got him through this story is he believed that Isaac would be risen somehow after he died, sooner or later. But Isaac never died. And so there is no resurrection in this story. In fact, at the end of the story, this mountain is called Moriah. Just like in Lord of the Rings, you Lord of the Rings fans. Because this, it's, it's Hebrew for the Lord will see, the Lord will provide, the Lord will see to it. Uh, it's, it's not God provided, and he did. It's, it, it's, the name isn't God did provide, it's, but God will provide. It's not looking back the story, but it's looking ahead at some kind of a fulfillment, some kind of a provision in the future. And if you've been tracking us with, with us in this series, of course, you know that the one that this story points us to is the Savior. I mean, look at how beautifully Jesus ties up this story. Can I just tell you something for a second? Like, if not for Jesus, I don't think that I could be a Christian. I, I don't think I could be a Christian if not for Jesus. If Moses' goals um, for this story, if, the, if that was all that we had, I don't think that my faith could survive this story. But check it out. The angel of the Lord, the one who stopped Abraham and saved Isaac, he 
put on flesh, and he stepped into the story in order to finish it himself. And you know what he did? On that very mountain, eventually, God's temple would be built. And on a little hill there called Calvary, Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross. On that very mountain where it was promised that God will see to it, God will see and God will provide, God did see to it and God did provide. And God's own son was the offering. He saw to it. God God provided. And uh, it turns out that Abraham was right to hope in a resurrection. Because three days after they killed Jesus, and he actually did die, he was alive again. He rose, and whereas Isaac died and he stayed dead, Jesus is alive. He's alive, and he is the earth's true Lord. And Jesus is the lamb that we're looking for. He's the lamb that they were looking for in the story. The, that lamb who uh, is, is missing and, and everybody's looking for him. And in and, and, and the end, there's a ram sacrifice. But the story, that, the, the lamb that who is missing from the story turned out to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he finishes the story. He finishes the story by proving for us what God is worth. You know, in a sense, Abraham didn't even finish the test, really, right? Um, like, like, what did it cost Abraham? What did, what did it actually cost him? Well, well nothing. Maybe, kind of, maybe in a way it cost him his relationship with, with Isaac. We don't know that for sure. But what did it cost Abraham? Nothing. What did it cost God? Everything. It cost him the, his own life, the life of his perfect, sinless, spotless son. He is the cost of peace with God. His life is the cost of our rescue and our forgiveness and our eternal life. And so I really love this quote by a theologian named Edmund Clowney. He says, um, the cost to Abraham was nothing, for God provided. The cost to God was infinite. He gave everything in the gift of his beloved son. The cost of redemption was total, but what God required, he provided. The faith of Abraham points us away from Abraham to God, to the God who sees, the God who provides. You know, can I just invite you to just do something for a second? Can you just look at your kids? If you've got kids in the room, can you just look at them for a second? Look at the kids who are on the screen if you got them there. Let me ask you, what if you knew that 10 years from now, half of the kids we're looking at right now, what would we do if half of these kids would want nothing to do with God. Like, would, would that affect how we talk about God today? And would it affect how we teach the Bible today? Like, I think it would, right? Like, as a church, is there, is there anything that we wouldn't do in order to help our people and our young people to know and trust that God is good? I don't think there's anything I wouldn't do for that purpose. Like, I would, I would try anything. I would risk anything. If it meant the difference between us and our kids trusting God or not, like, I would do anything except sin. I would do anything for that except sin. And I think, I'm pretty sure, like, you would too, right? And so we come back to the question that we began with. What do we do when we come to a story like this and God seems ungodly. What do we do when we come to the story like this and it seems like God is ungodly? What do we say to our kids or others who are afraid of God? You know what we say is, we say, 
I hear you. Let's keep reading. Let's keep looking. Let's keep asking our questions. Because the truth is that God is big enough and glorious enough that he deserves everything that we have to offer. He's also so good and so personal and kind and loving that he actually came and finished the test for us and he provides all that he asks. Let me say that again. God deserves everything from us. He deserves everything from us, but he also provides all that he requires. And so listen to how the New Testament borrows that idea, how it borrows the message of Abraham and Isaac. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul uh, gives us this promise that borrows from the story of Abraham and Isaac. He, he says in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't even spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything or see to it that he, we have everything? Provide for us everything. How will he not also with him grant us everything? And so, you know, maybe, um, maybe our young people are wrestling with questions about God. Maybe we're wrestling, maybe they're wrestling with this story and it just seems like it's too much. And I want you to know God sees, all right, and God will provide. And, and, and maybe as, you are, as you're listening to this and you consider yourself in the story of Abraham and Isaac, you're just like, you know, I had a dream, actually, that, that things in my life would be different. I, I thought by now that maybe I would have achieved more or I would do more, or be more, and, and things didn't turn out that way. I've put some dreams out of their misery, too. And, and God sees, and God will provide. Um, maybe you hoped that you would be reconciled to the person who hurt you. Or maybe you hoped that by now, that person would have gotten justice. Or maybe you prayed and prayed that the person that you hurt would forgive you so that you could be reconciled together once and for all. And maybe that dream is, is dying. Know that God sees and God will provide. You, you maybe have had a dream that, that things would be better in your life by now. Like maybe you would have been free by now from your anxiety or your depression or your stress or your fear. And it seems like relief is nowhere in sight. And maybe you feel like I've just got to kill that dream. And I want you to know God sees and God will provide. You know, God sees and provides. If you had a dream for your perfect family, for your perfect marriage, the perfect life that you wanted by now, and perfect kids, or a perfect home, or a perfect career, or purpose in life. Maybe you would dream that you would have achieved more, and life has just killed that dream. And, and if that's your situation, or the situation of somebody you know, God sees, and God will provide. He may not provide in the way that we thought. In all of these things, he may, his provision, the way he sees to it may not be the way that we expected him to do it, but he will. God will provide. Just as he did for Abraham and Isaac, God will provide. And that is an idea worth spreading. Can I just thank you for listening?